Welcome to The Politics Guys, the place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at, I'm going to get it right this time, Trey, Oklahoma Christian University. You've gotten it, yes. Yeah, there you go. It only took me a couple of weeks. So, um, so this, I think, is, this might actually be our first listener response show together. Is it? Is that possible? After all you, these years, all you know, time? I think actually we have we did one before, Maybe but a long time before. ago. It's been a while, yeah. I guess. It's, but uh, so yeah, I, I am looking forward to it, and I think if you're ready, we'll just jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. I'm curious to okay. see what everybody wants to know about. Okay, well, the first question I didn't tell you about this one. A uh, question from Andrew who wrote. Uh, Who's this Bruce Johnson fellow? Um, so, <laughs> listeners might uh, the listeners you might know that at the end of every show, uh, we we talk about we say the executive producers of this show are uh, well, uh, Trey Orndorff, Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson. We always say and Bruce Johnson. So that's what Andrew's asking. Well, to let you know who the mysterious Bruce Johnson is. Hi, Bruce. By the way, um, so a while back. We had like, I don't know, 37 tiers of sponsorship for the show. And at like the ultimate high, I think we called it like the double platinum tier, uh, that we said you could, we would give you an executive producer credit for the show. And Bruce well, just made an amazingly generous contribution, monthly sustaining contribution to the show. And uh, so that's why he's an executive producer because he has contributed, he contributes so much to the show that it really is a, a huge part of helping us keep going. And we are incredibly grateful to Bruce. And one of the things we do is, is to, to acknowledge that is to give Bruce an executive producer credit. So uh, even though that's not formally a part of the show, if you're interested in becoming the executive producer, let me know and we can work that out because, Hey, if there are more people like Bruce out there, that would be awesome for us. But anyway, that's the short version of why Bruce uh, is, uh, is just, such so why he gets that credit on the show because he is his support to the show is just above and beyond and we are happy to mention him as an executive producer. Yeah, and so if you, you want go. to do that, you should head to uh politicsguys.com slash support. There you go. And we just, and, we need like an executive producer button, maybe. Yeah, I I think I think, you know, because <laughs> like I said, the 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 many tiers thing just became too much and so we took it off. But I think executive producer was like uh, was like something like fifty dollars a month or more or something like that. So uh, and we just we just put it out there. So, well, what the heck? Let's see what happens. And Bruce came through for us and it was just so cool. And we're happy to mention him every week. So there you go. All right. Now, now, Andrew did have a political question for us as well. Actually, not for us, for you, Trey. <laughs> um, I, I, here it is. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your own perspectives in terms of what it means to be an American libertarian. From my perspective, libertarians are very anti-government, but in a lot of ways, that can mean cutting across any political news with something like, well, yeah, government is terrible. I don't get this from you, Trey, so I'd be curious to know how you think about libertarianism differently. No, uh, I hadn't appreciated this question from Andrew. And, and the answer is, is that it is always difficult when you are the ideology or the party that is generally not in power because it becomes really it, it, easy to be the people of no, whatever your positions are, right? Because you're always contrasting yourself with what's actually happening, which means you often end up being uh, negative in that sense, right? You're always saying, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that and we wouldn't do this and we wouldn't do this other thing. Um, and I think it's unfortunate because that has become 
I think the gut level position for what most people think libertarianism is, which is we're a bunch of guys who would just kind of kill all of government um, more or less. And then we think that perfection would arise out of that. And in, in all honesty, there is a very a number of views uh, of libertarianism, and I, I don't think any of them are quite uh, that simplistic. And so what I'll, I'll, what I'll say uh, for both you, Andrew, and for other listeners who are kind of curious about this is to know that kind of the positive position of libertarianism says is that people can perform their best in most circumstances uh, when they are not being coerced, right? And so what libertarians argue is, is that we want to encourage voluntary associations to emerge and to die and to emerge that kind of that creative destruction of the market to uh, move forward because we think that people can do the best that they can do when they are uh, free to make their own determinations and not being coerced by others. And so where that kind of anti-state view can come in is, is that one of the sources that we think that can coerce people are state institutions, because state institutions ultimately are about coercion, right? So you have to do certain things, or you're going to find yourself in jail, or you're going to find yourself at the end of a, of a, of a, a weapon, or in a lesser degree, you know, in prison, etc. And so as libertarians, what we're saying is, is that we think that for the whole, you want to make sure that those kinds of coercive situations are kept to a minimum so that people can thrive and make their own choices. Now, what's kind of cool about uh, libertarianism on this front, and I won't, I won't go too long because I could talk for too long, probably, <laughs> is that, you know, in, in our weekend show, we were kind of talking about, uh, in our bonus show for supporters, we had talked about Alex Jones and some of the cool things going on there. By the way, if you want to hear that episode, you should be uh, become a, a supporter. Um, but what I'll say is, is there's this idea from a thinker called Robert Nozick. And basically the idea is, is that you can join into all different kinds of voluntary associations. So, you know, maybe you want to be in a group of people who are religious. Well, that's great. Go do that. Or maybe you want to be in a group that's secular. Okay, go do that. So for libertarians, I think the positive view is, is that we think that people unencumbered by uh, coercion will, they won't do be perfect, but they're going to do the best that they can in those circumstances. And I think that's the positive view of libertarianism. And so when you're looking at any issue, ask, what do you think would give people the most ability to do the things that they would want to do? And that's a libertarian yeah. minus coercion. There you go. Yeah. And you know, I, I, that question is for you. I just want to add just a, a, a small thing, if I may, before Please. we move on, is that if, uh, is that if libertarians were, well, well that, that uh, formulation that Trey had, if libertarians were like Trey, uh, all libertarian or all people were like Trey, smart, moral, ethical, rational, I would be totally on board for the libertarian thing. Absolutely. I think that Trey should be about as unconstrained as possible. And I think <laughs> that Trey's choices would be awesome choices. And if we had a country of Trey's, that would work out great. Here's why I'm not a libertarian, because we don't have a country of Trey's. We have people who are irrational, who are either ignorant or not all that smart, and who are not necessarily very moral or ethical or what have you. And so that's why I'm not a libertarian. 
libertarian. That's why I like more coercion. So I've often said that libertarianism would look would work great if more people were like libertarians, but they aren't, and so it isn't. So that's kind of my my brief response to that. You, you know? know, and that's but, fascinating, Michael, because that seemed like I would have expected that critique from Jay. Huh. Interesting. That seems like a very conservative critique, to be honest. Well, you know, I mean, that, but that's me. I mean, I, I mean, that's where I kind of cut my teeth. My roots are in sort of still that kind of Burkean conservative sort of thing. So, you know, I, I have a problem with the whole liberal idea of perfectibility of humans through human means and all that kind of thing. The inevitable arc of progress, making everything better. I mean, that's that's not really how I fundamentally see humanity. I, I guess I have that kind of, you know, this. We're sort of these flawed, deeply flawed and irrational creatures and all that kind of thing. So that's kind of it gets a little too, you know, political and moral philosophy-esque maybe. But I think that's where that comes from for me. That is actually really fascinating. I, I think that we've put a, uh, put a pin in exactly why uh, you and Jake find some common ground in places. Yeah. I don't think that uh, supporters are always listening to because that is a very uh, Burkean position. Yeah. And that, that is very fascinating. And, you know, just to kind of finish that off, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And so, Andrew, I mean, this is going to be what differentiates libertarians is we're going to say, look, even when people are flawed, we think that the best that they can do will even still come out in um, circumstances where they're not being um, constrained. And that is definitely where I believe that conservatives very strongly um, and then um, in, I think in different tracks, others will, will take issue with us. And I think you're absolutely yeah. right to point that out. That's you, you, we have to defend the position that yeah. people won't, um, won't, it won't be the purge. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think I think that's a great point that you just made about the constraint thing. Traditional conservatives would say, well, the the instant people need to be constrained, uh, but the institutions that sh that should constrain them are are the family, the church, the kind of traditional social institutions. Mm -hmm. Whereas liberals would say, well, more the institutions that could constrain them would be maybe more the state, because a lot of these traditional institutions are are repressive or patriarchal or that sort of thing. Whereas liber libertarians would be more inclined to say, no, we just need to get away from a lot of these constraints altogether, whether they come from these traditional institutions or the state. Exactly, because we're worried about those. We share those same concerns with liberals. We just disagree that the state can yeah. uh, fix the problems that they think that they're fixing, right? So we would we would have, a, that's why you oftentimes see me agreeing with, see, with, say, Michael or with Ken, is because we're going to have those same kind of like, hey, how do we how do we minimize racism, for example? But what we're going to disagree with is going to be the ways to get to that point. Whereas a conservative is going to say, well, you, you can't, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which I think is going to be a question we're going to be talking about a little bit later. So, but anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, I didn't I didn't know that we were going to get quite that deep in the political philosophy, but it was fun. Uh, yeah. so, okay. Well, let's see here. Uh, Eric posted this question on our Facebook page. Since large government liberals, okay, sounds like he's maybe directing this at me, <laughs> love, love to ask the false question, how will we pay for tax cuts? This leads to my question. I would love for someone to explain how the Democrats' new mantra of Medicare for all will be paid for without destroying our economy and stifling economic growth. I should also mention that listener uh, Randy was also interested in hearing our thoughts on Medicare for all. So, um, Why don't you take the lead on that one? one, Mike, because okay, I think yeah, he's kind of directing it, was, it your way. 
I would say so. So, you know, this this comes out at a very good time because there was recently a study that was published by the Mer Mercatus Center, which is a right of center sort of libertarian esque uh, economic group, and they're, they're a great group of economists, of fascinating folks out of uh, George George Washington University uh, that looked at. Medicaid, or sorry, Medicare for all. And they said that they concluded that over 10 years, it would increase federal health care spending by, be seated before I tell you this, yeah, it's a big number. $32 trillion. And the right freaked out over this. But here's what was underreported. The same study, and again, this is by a right of center group, said that during that same 10-year period, overall health care spending in the period would actually decrease slightly and around 30 million more people would get coverage. And also millions of people who have coverage would get much more comprehensive coverage. So I think that was, I said someone underreport. So the answer to how this would be paid for would be that essentially there would be really nothing to pay for. Now, the thing that conservatives would have an issue with and libertarians would be that the burden then of coverage would shift much more from private individuals and private employers, and that would be taken up by the government. And that would be the conservative issue with it. It would be big government, yeah, but the overall burden would actually be, according again to this right of center study, would be less, but more of it would be taken up by the government. Now I should point out, and, and I know that some some are more my more policy, our more policy cognizant, kind of into the weeds folks on the right would say, wait a second though, that study that I read, and I know I'm sure that some of you did, did was based on the problematic assumption that providers would accept Medicare payment rates, which are often considerably less I think an average of somewhere around 30, 40% less than private insurance rates. And my argument that would be, well, yeah, the private insurance rates are too high because, you know, we spend all this money on healthcare, a huge segment of the economy. It goes somewhere, folks. Someone's making a lot of money off of this, you know, and who's making a lot of money off of it? Providers, hospitals, doctors, they're the ones who are making a lot of money off of this. Pharmaceutical companies, you know, that's why, you know, if you if you ask why our healthcare spending is so much higher, well, that money goes to somewhere, it just doesn't vanish into the ether. People get paid that money. And <laughs> those are the people who get paid that money. So there you go. Well, and you know, one of the other things, it's been, I believe, two years ago now. Uh, we there was a study comparing European um, public healthcare to American private healthcare, and when you take a look at the cost differential, one of the things that has to occur when you move to that Medicare for all, all the things being equal, is doctors, nurses, etc make less money in those yep. systems. Absolutely. And, and, and that's that's a necessary component of that. And so I will say that if you're gonna if you're gonna move into that kind of model, there is a lot of other things that you'd have to switch. And so one of my you know questions with it is gonna be when you're thinking about this, if you just make the move to Medicare for all, yeah, you're going to have some issues. You would have to adopt <laughs> a number of other strategies, including what you're basically talking about is caps on payouts and uh, caps on earnings for people in the medical field. Uh, but I will say, Michael, and it's interesting, I'm just curious to say about this, is that uh, there seems to be kind of the, the glib point of view. Well, we could, uh, if we just taxed everybody, 
a lot more. We could raise that uh, $36 trillion just like that. But you don't seem to really be saying that. And I think that's an important, <laughs> I think no, that's no, an yeah, important yeah. point. Yeah, I, I am an incrementalist when it comes to this. I liked, uh, uh, you know, while I had some major issues with Hillary Clinton for other reasons, I sort of one of the ideas that she sort of floated was this idea of a Medicare uh, buy-in. At, at a like maybe 50 or 55, something like that. And I think that's how this sort of thing would potentially work, not by some massive new sort of thing, but by gradually bringing in more people. I, I generally speaking, when there is an incremental way to do things, I tend to favor that just because when you make massive changes all at once, you tend to get a slew of unintended consequences and some of them can be pretty dire. So I tend to be a fan of go slow, especially when you're dealing with something this important. But I, I I hope this is the future. I should also point out that you're absolutely right that, you know, doctors and nurses, no matter what, would have to, well, not necessarily nurses, but it depends, healthcare professionals and, and pharmaceutical companies would have to get less. Mm -hmm. And there might be some downsides to that. But also, if you talk to people in the medical profession, they'll say that the amount of administrative red tape that they have to go through now is just insane and is just such a such a more than a hassle. It becomes practically soul deadening. And if you can remove a lot of that, which you potentially can when you have a single payer system, that can at least make up for some of the loss of revenue. Not all of it, certainly, but I mean, you know, that's again, there's no way to fundamentally change the system without without uh, changing payments to some people. It just can't be done. Exactly. All right. Uh, let's move on to Dave, who writes, I'd like to hear some commentary about the GOP and race. In the past, Jay has joked, how do you win an argument with a conservative? You call him a racist. Uh, so, so Dave continues, so I guess conservatives have felt unfairly under fire on this issue. Now we're in the era of Trump. Trump has successfully sued for racial discrimination, has been successfully sued for racial discrimination in his realty business. Trump said the Mexican-American can't do his job being a judge because he's Mexican. Trump has an advisor, Stephen Miller, who is a walking set of talking points for white nationalists. Still, Jay says he has no idea if Trump is a racist. Is David Duke an avid Trump supporter because David Duke is a giant fan of tariffs? <laughs> the, left, <laughs> the left, the left whines. This is Dave. Uh, the left whines and cries that hate crimes are on the rise, and neo-Nazis, white nationalists, etc., are recruiting and marching in increasing numbers. And Republicans basically say, "What does this have to do with us?" Well, now the GOP is officially being represented on the ballot by card-carrying Nazis, Holocaust deniers, and proud white supremacists. Russell Walker in North Carolina. Arthur Jones in Illinois and Paul Nealon in Wisconsin are probably the most egregious examples that leap to mind. I don't think that all Republicans are racist. My concern is that most Republicans don't seem to mind that racists have found room in their tent. Liberals have tried waving their hands in the air and screaming, Republicans are racist for a while now, and that doesn't seem to be helping. I feel like it's going to be people like Jay saying, We've been accused unfairly of being racist in the past, but we have a serious racism problem growing in our party, and this is unacceptable. How many self-identified self Nazis have to be running on the Republican ticket before it's not just lefty snowflakes who think this is an issue? 
Thanks as always for the great podcast. So no, I know this was directed more specifically to Jay, but Jay's not our only conservative voice. You you know you you come from great culture, so I thought this was completely appropriate that to ask you as well. So what do you think about what Dave's saying here? Well, Dave, there's a couple of things. And so one, you know, we were talking a minute ago about where libertarians and conservatives are going to have a little bit of tension. And I think part of the reason that the GOP is going to have uh, a greater difficulty than I think that you're hoping in recognizing racism is that uh, conservatives in general do not accept the idea of institutionalized racism as being a meaningful force most of them. Okay. Now, just to be clear on this front though, and, and to be careful, because I hear it a little bit in your question, you know, I know lots of Democrats who do not uh, accept the point of view of institutionalized racism as well. So one problem is, is that you, what you're basically accepting is a position, and I would actually agree with you on this one, Dave, uh, that institutions and society can have inherent biases even when the individuals involved are not personally racist, right? So in other words, um, you know, Mike and I might not be racists, but that doesn't mean that higher education couldn't potentially have racial bias, right? Um, And I, I think that is one place where the left and the right talk past one another. Because what ends up happening is that many people, and I think yourself included, are including that as part of racism. And I think in my case, rightfully so. And I am not sure if, let me correct myself, I am positive that uh, the Republican Party as a whole, you are not going to find everybody agreeing with that. Now, there's a second part to your question too, which is when is the right going to own up to kind of extreme elements supporting their part of the party? And I think the answer to that question is, well, never. And and the reason for that is, is that neither major party is going to want to embrace positions that they find abhorrent, but at the same time, they are generally not going to want to take up that banner because it ends up basically being the question of when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, yeah. And so, so keep in mind, as a, as a person who's been involved in the GOP, one way to try to downplay when you get the the, the Nazis and the and whoever whatever other crazy I recall I recall back a couple elections ago um, when uh, the uh, the Bunny Ranch out in Nevada supported uh, 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 Ron Paul and then ran, his son Rand Paul and everybody said well when are you going to give the money back and his answer was well I'm not like I'm not giving the money back and that doesn't mean I support him he decided to send me money I don't agree with him but whatever. I'm moving on. And I think that's kind of the way that most Republicans are going to deal with this because you don't, if you, if you start arguing with all of the neo-Nazis of the world, you end up giving them a platform. Mm, Um, Now I'm not suggesting that this meet, this somehow admits that everyone in the GOP has, you know, pure, amazing intentions. And, and, And I couldn't possibly speak for all of them, but just keep in mind, if they continued to always bring up the negative elements you talked about, well, they would be giving a platform to those guys. And my, they don't want to give those guys a platform in their party. But if they decide to show up and vote for them, I mean, I mean no one's going to 
throw somebody's vote away. I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody votes for me because they think I'm cute. Um, that's probably not a great reason. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually just factually wrong. See, I got an all for Mike. So, the, so there's my kind of two part to your answer. One is, is there is a difference, right? I don't think that many conservatives are going to accept your proposition about institutional racism. You're going to find more support from guys like me, libertarian kind of guys. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't, I wouldn't expect the left either to start trying to call out every time you got a, a socialist or a Marxist running when you get those running around every now and then. Cause again, why it, it's just a, it's a argument that's only going to harm you. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great answer, Trey. And I, I wanted to add just one one uh, short thing, I guess, is, you know, you, you talk about the, the institutional racism issue, and I think you and I, it sounds like we're, well, we're somewhat in agreement on that. And I think the reason why a lot of these things are not evident to people is because of how incredibly segmented we've become. And not just in terms of race, but also, I would argue, in, in a lot of socio economic ways. And let me just give you a, a personal example. Until the time I was around uh, 18, 19, I basically did not know any black people. I just, I mean, that was the, in the neighborhood I grew up in, the school I went to, the church I went to. It was all pretty much white, ethnic, you know, Central Eastern European. That was it. Then I went into the Marine Corps and it was like a whole different world. All of a sudden, I was thrown in with a lot of different races, uh, ethnicities, socioeconomic levels, and so forth. I mean, my, my parents were kind of like lower, middle, middle class. But all of a sudden, this was a whole different world. And I started seeing things very differently because of my association with these people, close association in, in many cases. And then, you know, and, and now I, uh, about 10 years ago, my, my wife and I moved to a, a lower income neighborhood where we're, we're, we're the minority in our neighborhood. And that has incredibly shaped my worldview. I mean, the, you know, the, the target I go to is very different from a target you might go to in the nice part of town and that sort of thing. And that sort of stuff really matters in ways I think that is just so incredibly hard to appreciate. And that's sometimes, and this just isn't a critique against the right. I mean, this is my frustration oftentimes with what I, what I think is rightly called the elite media is because these are people who travel in these rarefied circles and they can write about poor people or, or minorities, but they don't actually have any real contact with them. And that matters in a very important way, I think. And I, I think we need to do a lot more of that and it can make us much stronger and better as a country if we do. You know, that's a really interesting point. I'll just add one uh, personal note to that is that, see, uh, uh, unlike Michael, I actually grew up, uh, we were very poor. Uh, and what's interesting about that is, is that my early experiences include a very racially diverse group of people because of, you know, where we live and what we did and, and, and who I could end up hanging out with as a result. As a matter of fact, um, when I was growing up, I played uh, basketball on a team where I was in the minority, racially speaking. Um, and so it is interesting. I think you're absolutely right, Michael, that I think it can be a little easier sometimes to maybe intuit that institutionalized racism when you've when you've had those kind of cross-cutting experiences. Yeah, 
And not just, you know, and obviously not just racism, but just getting a, a better sense of, you know, how could these people believe these things or see the world in this way? Well, it's it can be oftentimes really difficult to grasp until you kind of have some close association with these people. And all of a sudden, then oftentimes the light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, OK, I can I sort of understand that now. But it's so difficult to do at such a remove that most of us are at. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's see here. Ryan has an uh, intriguing question for us. Uh, it says, you are both strategists for the parties. Uh, Trey, uh, this was originally for Jay, this will work for you, Trey. Trey, you are now working in the Democratic Party running campaigns. How do you take on Trump and give your candidate the best chance at beating him? He said, Or it could be if you want a, a congressional campaign as well. And then he reverses the question saying, Mike, you now work for the GOP. <clears throat> Um, you run Trump's campaign or, con- or a congressman's campaign. <laughs> what do you run on in order to beat a Democrat? So why don't you start with this one, Trey? Okay, and I say that we should restrict this question to the presidency because that way you have to support Trump. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll play. Okay, that's fine. Um, so just to be clear, I mean, this, I mean, if if there's anybody out there on the Democratic Party who would like to uh, cross hire a strategist and bring Trump down, I am on board. I, mm-hmm. My pay rate is low. Um, so just let me know. Uh, I'm putting my, this is my verbal application right now. So I would actually take this job. Um, I think the answer is, is that Democrats are going to have to use the same kind of tools that President Obama did but in a 2020 kind of way. And let me give you an example. When President Obama, now President Obama, ran against Hillary Clinton, he was able to defeat her in part because of his use of effective communication tools and social media. I'll give you a really great example. There was there was a moment when uh, the uh, the Obama team are, are collecting all of these phone numbers for text messaging to connect with people to get them to turn out. And Hillary ends up turning to her campaign manager and basically says, hey, are we doing anything like this? And his answer is no. And I, I honestly think that one of the reasons that she went down uh, in the first matchup with him is because he had used those tools effectively. And I think one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but I think one of the, the ways that Democrats lost with Trump is they they took him to be an idiot and they took him to not be savvy when it came to tech. And they said, look, the guy who doesn't spell things on Twitter right is going to be the one who loses. And they were absolutely wrong about that. So if I am planning for, you know, the 2020 Democratic Party, one, I want to have a candidate who is not Bernie Sanders. I want a Hillary Clinton without the baggage. That means that we need somebody who's not a Clinton. Okay, let's just be clear on this. And we need somebody who doesn't have ties to the Clinton machine era. Again, Hi, President Obama. And two, we need to then attack Trump. And I know there's been this kind of question about, you know, do we hit Trump the way he's being hit? And the answer is you don't have to be, you don't have to take the same tact that he's using with media to be effective with the media. And that means recognizing that you're going to have to play things in a Twitterverse where things are going to be amplified that way. And so my suggestion for candidates would be, you know, engage on that level, but you don't have to engage in the sense of 
you know, taking the dirty shot. And I think that a candidate who does that and who is consistent has a phenomenal chance of winning in 2020. I mean, the person who's, I mean, in this game, I think that I have the easier, <laughs> the easier time because I think Trump is going to have the harder, uh, the harder row. I really do. So Michael, what would you do? How would you combat me? So I have to, uh, I have to be Trump's person and not just some generic Republican candidate, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, the he's terms running for re-election, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, but a lot of stuff can happen between, yeah, but let's assume, okay, that's fine. Um, well, in a way, this is an easy thing. In a way, this is incredibly difficult for me because after Donald Trump was elected, after I sort of picked myself up off the ground uh, and just you know, was able to push my job from where it dropped so far, I, I thought to myself in my uh, I'm whistling past the graveyard, I guess, sort of senses, well, wait a second. Maybe Donald Trump could be a new kind of Republican. He's not tied to party orthodoxy. You know, he could he could he could tack much more to the center and decide he's going to work. Could he be a, a truly post ideological president? Now, we got an answer to that pretty quickly on, um, obviously, and the answer was no. But and the problem that I'm having with this is, from everything I know about Donald Trump, he would totally ignore any of my advice. I don't. <laughs> well, true. He's a but he's a 72 year old guy. His he's pretty much set in who he is and what he is. But let's assume that I had some Rasputin like power over him. I guess okay. <laughs> this is the only way this is going to work, Trey. Um, if I did, if I could somehow appeal to his ego. And asked him if, you know, if it could make him believe that I could get him not only a second term, but to go down in history as one of the greatest non-wartime presidents. Maybe that would be helpful, I guess. So here's what I would tell him. I would tell him, I would tell him, focus on a massive infrastructure program, a massive, not this public-private partnership junk that I have issues with for a lot of reasons, but focus on that. Focus on a massive prison reform program and focus thirdly on what you said you were going to focus on when you were a candidate draining the swamp. Focus massively on on campaign finance reform, campaign finance and lobbying reform. Those are those are bipartisan issues. Those are issues where you can get people on the right and the left. In case you didn't know what bipartisan meant, right? But I mean, especially the bipartisan, especially the campaign finance thing. You hear people on the far right saying exactly that. Got to drain the swamp. Got to drain the swamp. And you get people, the good government people on the left. That would have been an awesome opportunity, and especially from a Donald Trump who doesn't have to be beholden to the system technically, because uh, he could have spent his own money. Though it turns out he's rather stingy with his own money, but he certainly could spend, you know, a, a, a billion dollars or so and still live pretty well, obviously. So that would be my message saying, you know, he would come out and he would say, I am not going to take any funding. I'm going to disavow all outside funding. I'm going to fund this entirely myself out of my massive individual fortune. And my focus is going to be on totally reforming the way we do politics, a new kind of politics, draining the swamp, uh, making our infrastructure a 21st century infrastructure and making our criminal justice system a model for the world. And the criminal justice thing that brings in a whole bunch of people on the left who've wanted that kind of reform. And, hey, this is something, by the way, that the Koch, that the Koch brothers have been big fans of. So that would be my 
my specific recommendation to uh, the Trump 2020 campaign, which will get exactly nowhere, but I think that would be great to see. It's not going to happen, of course, but that would be my recommendation. You know, it's fascinating because I could actually hear Trump say all of, like, as you were saying that, I could kind of hear it coming out of Trump's voice until you he got to He could totally the, do it. No, he could. he could totally do it. Until you got to the part where it was going to be a model for the world. I don't think that's the way that he'd phrase that. But No, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, well, I, I, that was not me America trying to tease. America be first in all these things. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think you know? that'd be more mm. likely. But no, I, I, I think that would actually be, because in some ways that's kind of what he's done with trade. Yeah. I mean, he's taken a, a different a radical kind of path. I think it's a totally wrong path. But I mean, that's it seems to me that's the kind of thing that appeals to him inherently is let's do a different thing than everyone else has been doing. And hey, on campaign finance, you could definitely do a different thing. And I think that I agree with, you know, with uh, Larry Lessig and other reformers that this is the fundamental problem. And until you would until you address the fundamentals of how our elections work, you're going to keep on getting the same sort of stuff. So, yeah, you know. I think you're right. All right. I think we have time for one more question. Um, Daniel posed this question on, on the website in response to uh, an episode on politicsguys.com. He writes, with the recent election of 2016, having most of the population thinking they have to choose the lesser of two evils, I'm curious to know whatever happened to third parties. It seems as though anyone who brings up third parties is looked at like a lunatic with no valid understanding of politics. There seems to be myths that cloud the judgment of many voters that, that are already uneasy with the duopoly, yet they don't even consider researching another party. Granted, most information comes through mainstream news, but I'm curious as if to now as if now is the time for a political shift to come about, can there ever be a rise of a third party? And I really wanted to do this question, Trey, with you, because I recall a while back, I think it was in yeah, you had a lot of interesting and valuable things to say about third parties. So I was hoping you could kind of take the lead in answering Daniel's question here. Sure. Well, Daniel, that's a really great question. And it's one, you know, for anybody who has, you know, put themselves into a big tent party, uh, but have connections to minor parties have wondered. And the answer is, is that it's a little easier and probably a little more sad than you might realize. <laughs> and that is, is that there is actually this thing called Duvier's Law. It's the closest kind of uh, political science law that we have. And by political science law, I mean kind of like a law of science, right? And, and what it says is that the, num the electoral system determines more or less the number of viable political parties that you can have. In the United States, we have what are called single member districts uh, with first past the post, meaning that the person with the most votes wins. So you have one person can win per area, a single member uh, for each district. And even our senatorial seats, because they don't run at the same time, they still behave like single member districts. So they're not multi-member. And the person who has the most. So if you had, you know, five people run, someone could presumably win with just 25% of the vote. You don't have to have uh, an absolute majority. In those kinds of systems, we as political scientists can tell you that the, mo the most common form to then have is two major political parties. And the reasoning is kind of straightforward. So imagine uh, that you are a member of, you're a, you think of yourself as a libertarian or a socialist, and you know that there's about, I don't know, let's be, let's be very optimistic and say about 10% of the population uh, agrees with you, right? That's probably being optimistic, but there we go. 10% of the population. And now an election is coming up. Well, 
even if every single person who uh, is sympathetic to your view votes for you, and let's assume uh, that you're able to somehow nab another 10% more, you're still not going to have enough votes to win a seat. So what happens is, is that voters will end up slowly but surely migrating to candidates who they think will best represent them, even though they don't share all of their features. And as, as a result, you end up with two dominant political parties. Now, in the United States, we've actually had more than uh, two political parties, but never generally at one time. So one will kind of push the other one out and become one of the dominant political parties. And most recently, and this is one of the things that Ken and I spent some time on, but we'll just be uh, brief here, is that was the, the origin of the, of the Republican Party. So why don't you have third political parties? It's because of the electoral system. So even if the New York Times covered libertarian candidates every week, and even if you know you made these all these other changes, you're not going to see a lot of third party successful activity because the rules of the game are such to favor two dominant political parties. The kind of system that nets you lots of third parties are proportional representation. And there's countries around the world where you have this, the, the percentage of the votes you get determines how many seats you get, right? So in that system, if you have 10% of the vote, that means you're going to get 10% of the seats in Congress. Well, of course, you're going to vote that way then, because even somebody with 10% or 8% or 7%, they're still going to want to cast that vote because they're getting something. But in single member districts, the first past the post, if you can't, if your candidate can't ever win or even have a hope of winning, then there, then your vote ends up basically seemingly being wasted. Um, now it might be a signal, but it, it, you're not going to win. Uh, so so Michael, have I summed that up pretty well? You want to add anything? Oh yeah, you did a great job. You know, okay. and, and I think well, a lot of times we're not aware of that as Americans because we're not familiar with a lot of other systems. But there are plenty of other countries that do proportional representation systems. And, and I should point out that you know there there are pluses and minuses here. I mean, the one the one plus obviously is that you have a lot more uh, party represent a lot more parties represented in your legislature. But that also can lead to certain negatives. It can make it harder to organize the government. Government and it can give certain small groups a disproportionate amount of power and that sort of thing. So it's not like this is necessarily a better thing. It just means it, that our system comes with certain advantages and disadvantages relative to other systems is all. It's exactly right. And just a quick historic example is, you know, one of the things that people considered to be downfall of the Weimar Republic was the ability of small parties and a proportional representation to kind of seize control of government. Yeah. Uh, and then as a matter of fact, that's why today in Germany, if you visit, they actually have a mixed system. So they have two ballots, one's proportional representation and one or single member district. Uh, and their elections are a little more complicated, but they're trying to get the best of both worlds. And so, Michael, you're right. It's a it's a trade off. You get certain things and you lose certain things. And, and some have opted to try to do a little bit of both um, to mitigate the negatives. But there's still always trade offs. Absolutely. Hey, you know, I said this was our last. Can, can we just slide in one more? That would be awkward. We have one more question Let's I'd really it. like to get to, if that's okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Scott wonders why we're not paying more attention to what uh, some are calling the Obama spying scandal, or I guess I'd more broadly say it involves claims that the Obama administration worked with um, uh, uh, elements in the community, in the intelligence community, to harm Donald Trump's chances of winning the presidency. Um, 
And I think it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask. And here's my answer uh, for, for Scott and other people who might be wondering that. Uh, first off, unlike the Mueller probe and, and the House and Senate Russia investigations, there aren't any formal investigations I'm aware of of this, you know, the so-called Obama spy scan. I'm using the term just because there's not another good, quick, uh, simple term for it. Um what I see mostly, and I, I know there are stories on it, but what I see as it's mostly a lot of kind of selective connecting of dots, a lot of argument by innuendo, a lot of information we don't have. And, you know, when back when I was a conservative, I saw a filmmaker Michael Moore do a lot of this stuff in many of his films, and it drove me nuts. And I see kind of conservatives on the right doing the same thing. And so... When I see something like that, I think, you know, it doesn't rise to a level of something that I feel comfortable spending a lot of time on when there are other things that I think might be more important, more legitimate. Now, that said, I'm I'm certain that we will discuss this if there's ever becomes to the level where there's any sort of official investigation or even if there's some kind of a major investigative report on it from a reputable news organization, not like just some random opinion piece at some website or something like that. So if that happens, hey, absolutely, we will cover it. But to this point, I've kind of made the editorial judgment that it doesn't rise to the level of something that we're going to spend a lot of time on. But it, it, it certainly could in the future. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the things to kind of to finish that answer is to say, one of the things that we as the politics guys, it, it's a position that we reject. And that is the idea of this kind of deep state narrative uh, and that everything is a conspiracy, right? And that doesn't mean that conspiracies can't happen, and it doesn't mean that uh, state institutions don't sometimes uh, have autonomy that we don't recognize. But when, when I think that this kind of term, the deep state, which is ironic because we've kind of talked, this, this is a term that in some ways I would point back to Alex Jones and others, have used to basically be the coverall for any kind of information that's not coming out. So in other words, if information is not coming about something, well, that's the, the reason it can't happen is the deep state. But I agree with you, Michael, is, is that usually the downfall of those positions is, is that so many people would have to be coordinated that I just don't give government enough credit for being yeah. that efficient. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that no. sounds like a joke, but I mean that quite honestly. No, no, yeah. Um, you know, I remember th th this was an argument about 9-11. I had, I had, uh, we had a panel on 9-11 a number of years after it happened. Um, and there was a member of a, there was a 9-11 truther there. And I, I took two minutes to basically shut him down. And what I, and part of that was to say, look, if we could really get every branch of government and all of these individuals and none of them to leak anything about it, well, maybe we should just be happy that they were able to pull it off um, because that's, that's the likelihood of that is so low. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the past that I'm, I'm recently I'm re in the middle of reading this book on Nixon. And what a lot of people might not know is the whole reason why that much smaller kind of conspiracy to, you know, bug Democrats, why, why that fell apart was because the assistant director of the FBI, a guy named Mark Felt, uh, he was the deep throat source that kind of released all this information to the Washington Post. And he was doing that because he wanted to get the the, the director at the time to be uh, relieved 
because he couldn't control his own department and kind of be put up in the director's spot. It's like he was some brave public servant or anything like that, you know, but that's, there are, there are a lot of people like that, you know? And so that's why I just think it's so, so unlikely that you can coordinate a large number of people in any kind of conspiracy because it just human nature being what it is, you know, and I just like you, I just don't have that much confidence in the, uh, in the ability of people to keep a secret, usually because everyone has these other motives and there are oftentimes good individual motives from the leak. Exactly. And so again, this is not us saying that you can't have uh, duplicitous activity happening. Oh, no, not at all. But when it becomes, once it has to be widespread enough, one assumes that there will be some evidence of it. And so I think what we're kind of saying is we don't take the lack of evidence to be a sign of evidence. <laughs> right, right, right. And and I would think, you know, if there were more real evidence, given the number of people in, in Congress who are interested in kind of making this case, that there would be at least some sort of official investigation. Yeah. But to me, the very fact that there hasn't been anything like that to me is is somewhat is somewhat telling. Yeah, well, I mean, if if you're uh, Nunes, aren't you going to? I mean, I would love to get my hands on that. And if I if yeah. I thought it was real, if I even thought there was a chance it was real, I would be spending a lot of political capital going exactly. after it. Exactly my point. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you for indulging me with that final question, Trey. Of course, of course. It. So I guess that that does it. Yeah, for this for this episode, I think we're about at that point. We are, we are. So I think it's time to say goodbye. Yeah, well, uh, we definitely do want to thank everyone who uh, has listened and, and supports the show and all that. And you know, you know the deal, right? You know how to get in touch with us. You know how to support us. I should probably tell you again, though, politicsguys.com slash support. That's the link to support us or go to politicsguys.com and click on support. Also, uh, you know, subscribing to the show can really be helpful and leaving reviews and ratings and iTunes and just telling people about the show, sharing it is also a big help. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can mail us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page. We have all kinds of interesting discussions throughout the week. Facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we are also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and yes, Bruce Johnson. Uh, today's show is produced by Trey Orndorff. We will be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.